There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Today marks the 30th anniversary of the death of Colombian drug lord Pablo Escobar on December 2nd, 1993. I spoke to real-life DEA agent Steve Murphy, whose hunt for Escobar inspired the hit Netflix series Narcos, when he visited Lincoln Theater in Washington, D.C. in 2019. Steve Murphy. XDA agent, thank you for your service, sir. Um, who was they adapted it for the Netflix show Narcos, which everyone loved. Um, but the reason we're talking is you were coming for a special Q and A, awesome live stage thing called Capturing Pablo um, at Lincoln Theater. Uh, tell us what what this event is. Is it it's you and um, you know your, your partner? You, you you captured Escobar together. You'll be on stage sharing how that happened. Is there audience Q and A? What's the setup like? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate this opportunity. This is our first opportunity, let's say us, I'm talking about my partner, Javier Pena and I, to come to Washington, D.C. to speak. And what we're going to do that night is tell you the true story of Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel. It's not what you saw on Narcos, I'm, I promise you. It's, uh, there's a lot of Hollywood added into that. We're not the tough guys that they portrayed in the show. We're just a couple of law enforcement officers. You look tough here, so uh, yeah. you could have fooled me. look like an old <laughs> man sitting here. Yeah. But um, we show photographs. It, it, it sounds like a lecture, but it's really not. Uh, we just want to tell you the story. We have photographs that nobody else has access to. We have a few videos in there. We'll have uh, a lot of anecdotal stories we tell you about. And at the end of every show, we always have a question and answer session. So as the, as a, the audience comes in, they can write out questions to us. And quite honestly, we during the intermission, we threw out the stupid ones because somebody will always always asked, did we snort that much cocaine? Well, you know, nobody can snort that much cocaine. <laughs> so it's uh, it, it ends up being a lot of fun. And, you know, the questions can be about the investigation. It can be about narcos. It can be about any of the other cases we worked in. We even talk about our personal life to a certain degree. Wow. What what are some of so you, the, you said the cocaine snorter is sort of the joke questions you throw yeah. out, but what are some of the, the best questions you've gotten? Do any come to mind? Because you've done it, what, four years now? We're in our fourth yeah. year. Um, the most popular is, did they really kill my cat as is portrayed in season one? And to find out the answer, you've got to come to the show. <laughs> and, uh, the other really, really popular question is, did Javier Pena really have all those girlfriends? <laughs> and he'll answer that question for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, now you, you also mentioned just a second ago that the true story is not as Hollywoodized as the, you know, the Netflix show. What are some of the main differences that... Um, that they might have taken creative license with versus the real story. Well, you know, and, and that's part of the show. When we come back from inter intermission, the first thing we do is tell everybody, this is how much we think is true. This is what's kind of true. And this is which is what is yeah. uh, just straight out Hollywood make-believe. Sure. But it's uh, the violence. Now, if you've seen the show, as violent as it is, in real life, it was much more violent. Wow. So we've got some photographs to deal with that. Um, and and you know, the point is, we're not trying to pretend to be tough guys. Right. We're not trying to gross anybody out. You know, it's it's to 
to drive home the point that that career path is extremely violent. Yeah. We talked to a lot of high schools and, and colleges, you know, and that's the one message we want to get across to them. But what you will hear on February 2nd, I promise you, will be the absolute truth. What happened? People ask us questions about, you know, what's our opinion on drug policy? Well, that's a whole other interview, I guess. Yeah. Uh, what do we think about legalization? We kind of steer away from that. But you can probably figure that one out. Between Harvey and I both, we were cops for almost 75 years. You could probably figure out what our position is on legalization. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. As, as you would expect. How, um, how closely did you um, and Javier work with Boyd Holbrook and Pedro Pascal, the actors that played you guys? Did they call you guys trying to research the roles? What, and what did you make of, of the performance? It's got to be a little odd knowing that most people hear your name and think of their face rather than your actual face. <laughs> well, we think we're a whole lot better than they are. But, um, no, I tell you what, and that's a great question because not many people have asked us that during the interviews. We worked with Netflix and set it up with executive producer Eric Newman, who's the creator of Narcos. Um, we brought Javier. I, I live in the DMV area here. Javier lives down in Texas. Uh, Boyd, I think, was in New York, and Pedro was in L.A. at the time. But anyway, Netflix brought us all in, in here to DEA. We, we worked it out with headquarters, so they got a day in the headquarters building. They got to tour the building, meet people. They got briefings from uh, intelligence analysts, which are the smart people in DEA, um, about what happened back during the day with Escobar. Mm-hmm. Then uh, these guys are so gracious. They walked the building, let people take pictures, signed autographs. I mean, just really good guys. That was on a Monday. Monday night, we drove down to Quantico, and the rest of the week, they were embedded with the DEA training class at the DEA Academy in Quantico Marine Corps Base. So they did everything. They did everything from, from a lot of time on the firearms range to learn how to work undercover to learning how to do surveillance to uh, doing some physical defensive tactics. And these guys had the best attitude about the whole thing. At the end of the week, we asked them, we said, well, you know, was this beneficial to your acting career? And they said, you know what, absolutely, because the only thing we knew about cops was the, the uniform cops we, we've seen in New York and L.A., and that's how we were going to portray you guys. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, what DEA does is we don't wear uniforms. It's completely different than what the uniform police officers do. So, you know, we stay in touch. I would talk to uh, Boyd just before Christmas. He's married now and has a little baby. And uh, to watch the show, I don't think they could have picked any better actors to play our part. <laughs> How excited are you at not just working with the actors, but when it actually finally is about to debut on Netflix? Are you watching it live? Had they sent you advanced, you know, preview links, or how? You know, what's it like when you first sit down and, and you're like, "Oh my God, I'm a character now." <laughs> well, I think we've always been characters. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we go out to Hollywood and work with the writers, uh, we go over to Eric Newman's studios, and and uh, he has a, a viewing room, and he had always offered, "Hey, you want to see the latest episode?" We didn't watch any out there because we wanted both to be surprised when it came out, just like everybody fresh, else. Yeah. yeah, so we watched it. Uh, you know, watched all of season one. I'm not a binge watching kind of person, but um, right, season... let it breathe a little bit. Yeah, give me something to look forward to next week. <laughs> plus, plus, I'm kind of old. Yeah. I can't say that later. But <laughs> um, starts to hurt. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we watched the series, and and uh, I thought they did a phenomenal job. I mean, I, I'm, you know, the the language. I got to tell you one thing. You know, they show that. It, before either one of our characters uh, speaks, the first thing they do is light up a cigarette. Yeah. Javier and I don't smoke. <laughs> so that's that's one indication there's a little bit of Hollywood. And I don't know what right. that connotation is with that. Right. But now I've tried to go back because we travel all around the world. We're on the plane a lot. So I'll download movies. And I've downloaded Narcos probably three times, and I'll get through the second or third episode and think, yeah, okay, I've seen it once. That was enough. Right, right, right. So I'm ready to watch new things. Do you have a a, a favorite season or favorite episode? Um, there's a couple in there. The, uh, 
when they show how I met my wife, and so my wife Connie is actually portrayed in the show. They show we met in a bowling alley. That's not true. That's Hollywood. How'd you actually meet? Um, through a mutual friend that yeah. uh, I, I used to be a uniformed police officer in West Virginia, and I had to pull her friend over and give her a speeding ticket one time, and she got me back. She introduced me to my wife. Wow. That's the <laughs> ultimate payback. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've only been married 34 years, so yeah. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Um, but the uh, the scenes where we adopt a little girl, the, it's you know I don't want to give away too much on sure. the radio. I want people to come and hear us speak, but right, um, right, right. We did adopt a little girl, but it wasn't the way it's portrayed in the show. Right. But that's always near and dear to our hearts. Sure. You know, and we actually talk about that in the show as well. So when you're, I mean, you're mentioning your family. What, I mean, are, what you're eating, breathing, sleeping this when you're on this, you know, man. You know, you've seen in so many movies, they have the big spider web drawing, you yeah. know, the flow chart and Escobar at the top <laughs> and trying to, you know, whatever. But in real life, what is that? Are you going to bed every night? With him on your mind, his face in your brain, tra- you know, let's what, let's track, you know, like what does it actually, how does it actually consume you as a human? You know what, and that's a great point you're making there because we tell people, you know, and it's not just DEA, but I'm a little partial to DEA because that's where I retired from. Mm-hmm. Being a DEA agent is not a career, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. Yeah. I'm not kidding you. you. So many places we live, especially when you're still working undercover on the street, your neighbors don't even know who you are. You're lying to your neighbors about your job. Um, just because you need to maintain that anonymity, you never know when one of them might be the target. You know, so it's not like Breaking Bad when Walt knows that Hankton DA agent. Yeah, no, nah. yeah. <laughs> great quite. show, but yeah, oh, I, I love that show. Yeah, 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 I love that show. But it's uh, it's, it's more covert. It is, and and that when Escobar escaped from his prison, that's when Javier and I moved to Medellin. And we started living there full time for eighteen months. Uh, a lot of people don't know we had the Army's Delta Force and the U.S. Navy SEAL Team Six stationed with us for eighteen months. Also, wow. What year is this that when you moved there? Uh, I got there in 91, June 91. Okay. I transferred back to the U.S. in June 94. But now, so I did three years. Javier was there for six and a half years and then went back and did another two years. So yeah. that's what, if you see season three, which is about the Cali cartel, that's why yeah. his character is portrayed and mine's not because he actually went back. Gotcha. Yeah. In real life, I mean, the, the show's one way, but in real life, what was the, you know, you're, you're saying it's consuming you and, you know, you're you're just obsessed trying to do this what was like the breakthrough moment if you had if there was one breakthrough moment well you know what it would be that last day yeah. it would be Pablo Escobar's last day because we'd been there for 18 months and and you know as hard as you work you, you run into so many frustrating points you'll literally well, there were times when we would hit houses doing raids and the coffee would still be hot in the coffee cup you know he just either got tipped or he saw us coming right uh, there were so many times when we got close. Then there were political issues that got in the way, you know, both from the United States as well as Colombia and mm-hmm. pressure from other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. So uh, and the reason I'm saying that is because it, it will cause you to get a little bit discouraged. You know, and there was time after time that Javier would talk about it. It's like, you know, I wish this guy just surrender or would die or whatever just yeah. so we could go home. But then you see your Colombian National Police Officer friends that you've been living with, working with, eating with, getting killed. Yeah. Man, that just renews your resolve to get back out there and, you know, we like to say suck it up, buttercup, get out there and do your job. Right. So I guess, you know, the day that Escobar was killed, now, and here's another spoiler, I guess, is it shows in the in the, in the show Narcos, it shows that I was on the roof when Pablo was killed. Absolutely not true. I was back at the base that day, and this is a point we drive home with every audience, that day the Colombian National Police were the heroes. Because they went out, they encountered the target they'd been looking for, they engaged that person in a gunfight, and when he died, they took their country back that day. Yeah. 
Well, I guess uh, putting you on the roof is a little more Hollywood dramatic. But, it is. <laughs> but I mean, you're, I mean, you guys are still down there. So, um, what Escobar the man? Paint a portrait. What do you? What do you? What do you make of him? You know what? The late Escobar. This guy had probably the biggest ego. I mean, he was on a power trip. Like, I mean, I, I've I've equated him to Adolf Hitler at times. Now, I don't think he's responsible for as many deaths, but he is responsible for tens of thousands of murders. So you've got a guy here who is uh, not to mention any drug overdoses or anything like that. I mean, yeah. straight yeah, this is just yeah. straight out business. Yeah, uh, whether it's competitors or law enforcement or maybe you parked in the wrong parking place and that's where he wanted to park. I mean, he was right. that vicious. So the man had no conscience. You know, he had no remorse whatsoever, no compunctions whatsoever about killing somebody. He would ask you to do something one time. If you didn't do it, either he or one of his sicarios would kill you. Sicario is the Spanish word for assassin. Sure, another movie. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. Um, so he had, by his own admission, he smoked marijuana every day, so he was high most of the time. Uh, we don't know that if he ever used cocaine. I never, quite honestly, we've never heard anybody confirm that. You suspicion that it might have happened, but you don't know that for sure, so we don't say that. Right. Um, but there's a couple myths that follow him as well. And one of them, there's two. One is he's a devoted family man, and this really gets under my skin. Because here's a guy who's responsible for tens of thousands of murders, who's, who's able to negotiate a surrender deal with his own government, to surrender into a custom-built prison that he paid for, which, you know, that's a what a joke. Right. And his, you're not really doing time at that point. No, no, you're just hanging out. You're building my new house, yeah. Exactly. And so he his sentence was only five years for killing all these people. And by pleading guilty to one crime, he was absolved of every other crime. Now, if you're a devoted family man, you've only got to do five years in this luxury luxury resort. And wait till you see the picture. If you come to the show, I'll show you the inside of his his prison cell. Yeah. You're not going to believe this two-room suite he had. If he's a devoted family man, he's been in prison one year. He's only got four more years to go. If he's really devoted to his family, you can stand on your head for five years if, if that's the what you're going to get in the end, right? That you get to spend your time with your family. You watch your children grow up, get married, your grandchildren. I mean, the man's got it made. And by the way, there were no stipulations in this agreement to take any of his assets. He's a multi-multi-billionaire, and he gets to keep it all. But as we all know, that's not what he chose to do, right? So right. he ended up killing a couple of associates, and, and we had an informant that told us about it, and that's, how, that's what led to his escape. Right. So that myth, we debunk that myth everywhere we go. The second myth is that he was some kind of this Robin Hood figure. Now, just to set the scene for you, he did go into a group of people who lived in one of the poorest barrios in Medellin who literally lived on the edge of a trash dump. Their housing was the cardboard and pieces of wood that they could get out of the trash dump to build around themselves. Their food came out of the trash dump. The, the clothing they wore came out of the trash dump. So Pablo went in and he built housing. And it's, it's like these communities that you see on TV all the time. But you think about it, if you're one of those people and now all of a sudden you've got a, a roof over your head, you've got running water, you've got electricity, You've got a door that with a lock on it that you now yeah. have a little bit of security. Yeah. Well, what are you going to think about that guy? You're going to think he is Robin Hood, right? Yeah. He did go out and build clinics. He built soccer fields. He gave away money. He gave away food. These are all magnanimous things. Mm -hmm. But what nobody ever wants to tell you about is the payback. Right. Because what Pablo did is it's he— come with favors. Exactly. He manipulated these people so that they loved him, they adored him. Yeah. And when Pablo needed new Sicarios because all of his Sicarios were being killed mm -hmm. in all these firefights, yeah. where do you think he went back to? Well, it's, it's it's Johnny Fontaine got that movie. I mean, exactly. it's, that's that kind of the favors are never just a favor, right? You know? There's always a payback. Yeah. So we we refer to Pablo as a master manipulator. Yeah. 
I think you're right. The puppeteer. I'm Bradley Trainer, And I'm Don McClain. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game. And you can play along. The item might be like, this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. Would you, would you, I mean, um, you probably don't want to brag on yourself, but the finding and hunting down and, you know, and killing of Pablo Escobar where would you rank that? I mean, that's got to be up there. You know, Bin Laden, of course, but you know, there's it's got to be one of the the biggest, uh, you know, U.S. I guess, victory for lack of a better word in in such a you know a mission like that. Absolutely, it was you know at that time, well, Pablo was the world's first narco terrorist. He's recognized as the first narco terrorist. So what's a narco terrorist? It's just a narcotics trafficker that employs terroristic activities in his daily business. It's real simple, right? And and he was employing car bombs. Well, you know, in law enforcement here in the United States, we weren't used to seeing car bombs. It was that was very surprising. Right. That was, I mean, well before you know roadside bombs and right. Iraq and, and everything else. And unbelievably dangerous because, you know, if you're driving down the road and a car bomb goes off next to the vehicle you're in, you're dead. Mm-hmm. It's just like you see in, in Iraq with the IEDs going off. Right. He was also the world's most wanted criminal. And uh, back during that time, we all remember the TV show America's Most Wanted. Of course. They actually came to Medellin, Colombia with us for a week and filmed one episode only of the world's most wanted. And that was Pablo. Wow. Now, uh, recently, I saw something on the Internet. Of course, if it's on the Internet, it's true, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it was rating the 15 richest criminals of all time. And guess who's number one? Still number one, really? Pablo Escobar. Wow. Chapo, I think, was number two, but not even close to what Pablo's wealth was. Wow. So uh, it's the biggest criminal case I ever worked in my life. Same with Javier. You know, we knew it at the time. When we got to Columbia, we did not know that's the case we'd be assigned to. Didn't know each other, got to be friends. You know, now we're partners. We're, we've been partners since 1991. Now in, in life after DEA, we're still partners in our speaking business. And and, right. uh, and this is something you just never expect to happen. Yeah, totally. So the Lincoln Theater Show is Saturday, February 2nd. Um, Groundhog Day, ironically. You uh, you're telling the story over and over again. Um, <laughs> no, but so that's Saturday. But did I also hear that you guys are going to, you're trying to go to Capitol Hill for for something? Is that effect, Is that still on with the shutdown or how does that, uh, you still going to go? We've been told as long as Congress is in session, we're good to go. Okay. And what, so, so explain what you'll be doing. What are you trying to, you know, um, what activi- activism are you trying to do? Well, this is our second time going up on Capitol Hill. We were there in April of last year, and we'll be up there again next week on uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. We've partnered up with a, a group called Partnership for Safe Medicines. We've also partnered up with uh, some executives from uh, Boring or Ingelheim, which is one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world in mm-hmm. Germany. Now, you might think that sounds a little weird that a DEA guy is tar- uh, you know, right. partnering up with them. They make no narcotics. Right. That's the reason we partnered with right. them. They make cancer medication. They make COPD meds, things like that. So there's two reasons we're going to Capitol Hill. One is to bring to light the fact that people are ordering counterfeit medications online. So if you think about this, if I've got cancer, you know me, and I'm going through all the medical treatments, and Mm -hmm. I've expended all my funds, and I decide to go to Mexico to get my cancer meds. I come back, and I eventually pass away. Well, you, you... you and everybody else that knows me thinks, well, he had cancer, you know, cancer one on this case. Right. Not knowing that those meds that I bought in Mexico were placebos, could mm. be sugar pills, right. could be laced with fentanyl. Right. 
which is the most dangerous thing out there right now. Right. So essentially what's happened is the perfect crime has been committed when that happens because they don't even do an autopsy on me. They knew I had cancer, right? Right. So um, there are politicians, and I, I, we're very apolitical. Sure. We make fun of both sides, I'll be honest with you. But there are, um, there are certain people that are, are backing buying your meds online from Canadian pharmacies. Right. You know what? When we go before Congress this coming next week, we're going to have a retired Canadian police officer with us who will explain, well, that's all a hoax. Sure. Because when you order from a Canadian pharmacy, you're actually getting your meds from China, Mexico, India, Pakistan, whatever part of the world there happens mm-hmm. to be a criminal in at that point, sending those over. So that's one thing we focus on. The other is um, the uh, opioid, heroin, and, and uh, fentanyl epidemic that we're facing here in the United States. It's crazy. I Everybody mean, knows people that they've lost. We all members, do. Friends. Yeah. And let me tell you, and I, we say this, we do a lot of private audiences. If you think that's not going to touch you, you better take a closer look at your family because I promise you somebody in your family or somebody that you know personally mm-hmm. is involved with this. Yeah. Maybe they're just hiding it. You don't know. Right. But that's how widespread this is. Yeah. We're talking about as many as 200 overdose, overdose deaths per day. So to put that in a little perspective for you, air, air travel is very safe, one of the safest forms of travel mm-hmm. on a commercial airline. The average aircraft, when it crashes, I think there's the average number of people dead is 123 or 127. Mm-hmm. Well, in this, this opioid heroin and fentanyl issues, we're talking about almost 200 people a day. So what would the response be of the world if an, a commercial airliner right. crashed every day somewhere in our world? That's the equivalent. Oh, my gosh. We'd be up in arms, wouldn't we? And, but it's happening right under our noses. It is. So we're, we're pushing that. And, in, I mean, you know, the, the administration has brought in new right. op- opioid legislation. Mm-hmm. That's good. In our opinion, it's a first step, though. That's not a, that's not a, right. it's not over. Right. So there's other steps that we would like to see taken uh, to make it a little stronger. Right. You know, big farmers probably not in favor of it, but right. I think we all know they've made a lot of money at everybody else's expense. Totally. You know, the, the war on drugs, it's probably the biggest misnomer I've ever heard, you know, because and you can look back. What do you mean? The, Explain what you mean. Well, even back in the day when and when President Reagan declared the war on drugs, mm-hmm. Well, we're out there fighting against Pablo Escobar. Javier and I are living in Medellin, Colombia with the Colombian National Police. Well, when you fight a war, you bring up your allies, right? You bring up manpower. You bring up materiel. What did we do? We sent Javier and I to Medellin. That was it. Two guys. Yeah. Now, we had a lot of support out of our embassy. We had agents who were always available to back us up. We had intelligence analysts who were just going through things. Uh, DEA officers worldwide, as well as other federal agencies, were we were feeding them leads. They were feeding us leads. But we've got two guys as boots on the ground up there. I mean, it's it's more of a joke than right. than a declaration of war. So, uh, was there was there moments was there a moment the closest that you know you actually felt your life in danger while you were there? What was the closest? Like the biggest scare? Was there any? Um, well, for me personally, it was flying in on helicopters on raids. Yeah. When you're taking rounds, um, and for Javier, uh, he he'll say this in the show that his biggest fear was the roadside bomb, the car bombs, because you could just be driving down there yeah. and you you happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when I that bomb coming. goes off. Yeah. You can't fight back. Um, you know what? We did face a lot of dangers down there, but we didn't face nearly as many dangers as the Columbia National Police. Mm-hmm. So we, people are are gracious with us. Our supporters, they're like, "Oh, you guys are real, true American heroes." No, we're not. We don't prefer, we don't pretend to be a hero. We're professional law enforcement officers here in the United States who got to work a really big case, mm-hmm. a case of a lifetime. The true heroes in this whole thing are the Columbia National Police, 
because they took their country back, and also the innocent people in Colombia who died simply because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. You know, wherever we go, almost every show we do anywhere in the world, there are Colombian citizens in the show. And every time they will come, they try to meet us backstage or they'll wait after the show to try to meet us as we're leaving the theaters or wherever we are. Mm-hmm. And you know what their message is? Thank you for what you did for our country. So if you want something to make you feel good, I can't think, well, my kids make me feel good, but you know what I mean? <laughs> I can't think of a better statement from somebody from another country than to thank me mm-hmm. for what little bit I did in their country. Absolutely. Well, you've been generous with your time. And, and you know, just to bring it full circle, why should our listeners come out to the Lincoln Theater event? Final sell. <laughs> All right. Here you go. This is, uh, this is a one-of-a-kind show, ladies and gentlemen. You won't see this anywhere else. There are, I understand that Pablo Escobar's son is traveling the world giving his version of what's going on, and, and I've read his books, and um, don't believe anything he says. Oh, well, what, what, is, what, is, what is his main treatise? Well, he, he's trying to say that his father committed suicide on the roof that night, that he had always said, you know, this pistol carries 13 rounds, it's 12 for the police, one for me. That's not true. Yeah. If you've seen all the pictures of, of Pablo Escobar's body on the roof, I took those pictures. I was a local police officer for almost 12 years before I became a federal agent. I've trained in murders and suicides. Given the circumstances, if he had committed suicides, it would have left powder burns on the side of his face because of the kill, the, the shot that killed him went in his ear. Mm. You can look on the Internet the pictures yourself. Don't take my word for it. Yeah. See if you see any powder burns because I'm here to tell you there weren't. So that's just a straight-out lie. What happened to the body? Was he, where was he buried? He's buried in Medellin. It's, uh, you're going to love this. It's the most visited tourist attraction in Colombia, Pablo wow. Escobar's gravesite. Wow. Um, but so what you will hear at our show, though, is the absolute truth. Now, we're going to have a little fun. We're going to try to get the audience to laugh a little bit, show you things you've never seen before, tell you things that, that either you thought were true or, or were not true, and we'll confirm all that for you. And then during the Q&A, let's have some fun. Ask us questions. We'll answer anything you got. Awesome. Thanks again. This has been great. Uh, Steve Murphy is going to be co-hosting the Capturing Pablo event. You can ask all your Narcos Netflix questions uh, at the Lincoln Theater. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Our theme music is Scott Buckley's Clarion. Remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.